The Wings Over New Zealand show is brought to you in association with the Wings Over New Zealand Aviation Forum, New Zealand's number one aviation discussion forum online. There you'll find discussion on all aspects of New Zealand aviation, from history to current affairs and thousands of photos covering the Royal New Zealand Air Force, airlines, general aviation, warbird restorations, air show news, sport aviation, home building, gliding, aviation media and much, much more. You'll be in good company with other aviation enthusiasts, including pilots, engineers, warbird owners and restorers, historians and authors, modelers, aviation photographers and many others. Sign up to the Wings Over New Zealand community now. It's free and easy. Just Google Wings Over New Zealand and you'll find the forum. G'day, I'm Steve Vischer. And I'm Grant McCarran. And we're from Plain Crazy Down Under, Australia's aviation show. And you can find us at plainecrazydownunder.com. We reckon for the best coverage of the Kiwi warbird restoration and aviation scene, you can't go past Dave Homewood and the Wings Over New Zealand show. On you, Dave. Yeah, good on you, mate. Yeah, we've got to get to New Zealand soon. Where is that anyway? Well, it's where I grew up. I thought that was Brisbane. Hi, it's Matt Jolly from WarbirdRadio.com. Listen, I am thrilled to have Dave Homewood as part of our broadcast family and bring your stories, the stories of the RNZAF, heard right here on Wings Over New Zealand to our global audience. Thanks for listening. I hope to hear from you sometime at WarbirdRadio.com. Extended, the ETOPS Aviation Podcast. Aviation-extended.co.uk And remember, there's no E at the beginning of Extended. Extend it. Welcome to the Wings Over New Zealand show with Dave Homewood. Good evening and welcome to the inaugural Gene Batten Lecture. The Gene Batten Lecture uh, has been uh, established by the Bay of Plenty branch of the Royal Aeronautical Society. Before we start, I'd like to make a couple of acknowledgements. And uh, first is uh, Classic Flyers for having us here, and particularly David Love, who's the chairman of the board, and CEO um, Andrew Gormley. It makes a huge difference to have a home, any organisation, and to have this as ours, uh, we are grateful and acknowledge it gratefully. I'd like to acknowledge um, members of the uh, other branches, particularly Hamilton that are here tonight, and also uh, my own committee, David Lyon. David is here. Uh, Wally G, in the back, Mike Feist, and Jack Best, who's not here. With a theme of it being an aviation organisation, normally we'd have a quiz of what these aeroplanes are, but we're not having one of those today. Other than to say the aeroplanes you'll see in the next few minutes is uh, indicative of the aeroplanes of the era of Gene Batten. Moving on. The, um, in the year that it's been established, the Bay of Plenty branch has, had, has run 
monthly meetings, including in, in its perspective, a forward-looking perspective on aviation, including such diverse topics as UAVs. In fact, in this room, I flew one around. And uh, on the theme of uh, things rotary, we had uh, Andrew Duffy, who's a member of the branch, tell us about all manner of helicopter operations in all manner of places where oil and gas is being um, explored and dug out of the ground and out of the sea and the amazing list of helicopters that went with it. Other thing the branch does is uh, connect its members with uh, through email to keep in touch with aviation and so it's not just clicking on the emails, it's uh, actually getting um, what others have divined is the latest information. And some of our members who often can't get to meetings say, I am really happy that uh, uh, I'm in touch with aviation even though I can't be at your meetings. The other thing we did, uh, and he's here tonight, is to recognise people in aviation. In other words, these are notable people in aviation and this year in April, Brian Cox, who's since become a member of the branch, uh, was awarded the uh, Meritorious Service Award uh, by the New Zealand Division of the Aeronautical Society. In view of uh, Brian's service, um, we arranged for that, to be, that presentation to be made by Sir Stephen Dalton, who's the president-elect for the Aeronautical Society, here in, Hamil or in Hamilton uh, earlier in April. Next month we will have um, Mark Bileski uh, talk to us about uh, Boeing 787 operations. And uh, in one of our, one of our uh, uh, adventures, David Evans and I uh, took, a, took a glider flight as part of the things we, um, we did. Uh, if you take nothing else away today, take away a branch business card. If you're interested in um, following or joining or interested at all in the Bay of Plenty branch, it'll give you the um, web pages and the Facebook page. And what we're here for tonight. The, um, the Bay of Plenty branch was looking for a, uh, a highlight topic for the year, something we could do annually, and we decided on a historic theme. We would have a guest lecturer. We decided that Jean Batten, who was born in the Bay of Plenty, a famed New Zealand aviation long distance pilot, would do, and uh, indeed the road outside uh, the Jean Batten Drive uh, fits in quite nicely. 2016, of course, is the 80th anniversary, as you'll hear later, of uh, Gene Batten's flight from UK to New Zealand, and um, we thought, therefore, that Gene Batten herself should be the topic of the first uh, Gene Batten lecture. For next year, thinking ahead, uh, the lecture will be on the 1st of September 2017, just 364 days away, and... Um, I was wondering about J.J. Uh, Hammond being the topic. J.J. Hammond taught the Australians how to fly. Now, it must be a good subject. <laughs> Moving on. 
other people have decided that uh, 80 years since uh, Jean Batten had done her flight, New Zealand On Air funded a $3 million investment to a company to create a movie called Jean. It will be a uh, TV One Sunday theatre item. It's two hours long uh, and includes um, Kate Elliott, as the, as, who plays Jean, and this is her, and if you've seen pictures of Jean Batten, uh, the rhetoric suggests that uh, she bears an uncanny um, resemblance to uh, Jean Batten herself. Critically, for us in the aviation world, um, Kate Elliott learned to fly as part of her um, preparation for the, for the movie. And at the bottom, you'll see again, there's two, there's two aircraft. One is a gypsy moth, and one is a proctor, a Percival proctor, made to look alike, look alike um, uh, Jean Batten's Vega Gull. This aeroplane is, um, has been doctored for the movie, and uh, two people in Tauranga were involved in making that transformation. So we're, here we are at the point of the 2016 Jean Batten lecture, and it's my privilege to introduce the guest speaker, Mr Brian Lockstone, who's a member of the Royal Aeronautical Society, as am I, and some others in this room. Brian has been in and out of aviation for more than 50 years. He received an Air Training Corps flying scholarship, but was unable to complete his original ambition to fly with the Royal New Zealand Air Force. It led, as he says, to perhaps a wider engagement, I would read, in aviation. After a spell in journalism, where he wrote about aviation and politics, he moved into government in the old Prime Minister's department, then out to the wider world of airlines and civil aviation. He is married to a retired New Zealand diplomat, and for much of his past 35 years, they have served, or they have been overseas ranging from postings in the United States, where his wife was the New Zealand permanent representative, ambassador to the United Nations, to Europe and the Pacific. More recently, they were in Paris, where she was the New Zealand ambassador to France. Earlier postings include London, Canberra and the Solomon Islands, where, as he puts it, in an unusual combination of circumstances, he became, in effect, the deputy in the Civil Aviation Division of the Ministry of Post and Tele Telecommunications. This was a challenging period where the new government was adjusting to independence and breaking free from the regulatory environment laid down by the British for colonial territories after the war. He drafted the country's first Civil Aviation Act of Parliament and helped compile the first aeronautical information publication. All, he says, with the assistance, much assistance from New Zealand and ICAO. He joined the ANSET airline group, working in New Zealand and Australia on government relations and regulatory affairs before taking up a similar role for Qantas. He has also undertaken private consultancy work in the aviation field. He joined the New Zealand Division of the Royal Aeronautical Society in the late 80s, but as he says, 
the connection waxed and wanes with frequent moves around the world. He is a member of the Aviation Historic Society of New Zealand, has been since 1961, and of the sister organisations around the world. He is currently president and editor of the Society's quarterly journal, The Aero Historian. Aviation and military history remain his principal interests. He is the author of several books, most recently an account in English and French of the New Zealand Division on the Western Front 1916-19 to and published for the New Zealand Embassy in Paris. He has also been an advisor to the Ministry of, Ministry of Culture and Heritage on Western Front battles and commemorations. He is a consultant with the Air Force Museum of New Zealand. He, uh, he and his wife live in Amberley in North Canterbury. He remains she remains active in diplomacy and academia. And I'll let uh, Brian tell you how, at his own expense, he made the decision to uh, honour us tonight by delivering the first um, lecture by coming from New York. It is my pleasure, therefore, to invite the, the, our guest speaker to deliver the first, or the inaugural, Jean Batten lecture to you tonight. I present Mr Brian Lockstone. Thanks, folks, and it, it's great to be here in this wonderful environment. Uh, I must say the last uh, time I was in Tauranga was 1982, <laughs> and uh, there certainly has been some great changes. But the atmosphere here is just terrific, and it's, it's in marked contrast to other aviation museums in New Zealand, including one north of here uh, in a big city, and I might say the Air Force Museum of New Zealand. Now, the Air Force Museum is changing quite rapidly, but it, it, it lacks the sense of intimacy and involvement and access that we have here. And this is wonderful. It's a credit to the whole organisation. It's a credit to the airport company and it's a credit to Classic Flyers. So thank you for the opportunity to be here. Uh, I flew in yesterday from New York and I go back tomorrow um, mainly because uh, I have a diplomatic function on Sunday and I have to do a presentation on New Zealand foreign policy at a think tank on Monday morning and I thought I'd better be reasonably sharp for that. So anyway, again, thank you for the honour of presenting this inaugural Gene Batten lecture. I must say from the outset that it won't be the glossy presentation that some might expect because intentionally there are some gritty parts as well and we'll come to those. Now, 1902 to 1982, uh, Jean Batten, her flights and times, and this is Jean in the front of her second de Havilland, uh, or rather second gypsy moth. It was a DH-60M, the metal moth, in which the wooden fuselage of the original was basically metal, and a very tough and robust airframe for its day. You can see all her honours and awards there. Anyway. It's now 80 years since Jean Batten etched her name in gold uh, across the world and generating immense publicity for herself and for New Zealand 
and endless admiration for her flying activities. It was an heroic age of long-distance flights. She broke records and set new records. She dazzled the world with her achievements and her beauty, but particularly with her determination and an extraordinary run of good luck. Now, uh, it's evident from the earlier photographs that she was strikingly beautiful, but she was aloof, and she had a, a determined facility for long-distance flying. Now, we'll take her, and there, and there she was. I can call her an aviatrix, because that's what lady pilots were called in those days. And uh, she was always immaculately clad, and made a point of carrying makeup with her, so whenever she stepped out of the aircraft, she was in, in perfect condition. So there we are. Now, uh, she dazzled the world of the 1930s. Now, this was already awash with the long-distance flyers, uh, but there were no glass ceilings for her because there were plenty of women pilots around at the time. But however, though, uh, uh, she was a remarkable person, and she was showered with honours and awards from Brazil, from France, the United Kingdom, and the United States, and of course, New Zealand, where she was awarded a CBE. The government of the day wanted to uh, make her a dame a commander of the British Empire, but in those days, the honours and awards uh, were forwarded to London by the Governor-General, who was then Lord Galway, uh, and London vetted them. And the view came back was that, no, they didn't want uh, Jean made a dame because Amy Johnson, the other pioneer pilot, wasn't made a dame, so they weren't going to have this young woman from the colonies as a dame commander. But the interesting thing about Jane is that, Jean rather, is that when she was flying and her achievement, she represented the very essence of the new society that had emerged after the Great Depression and uh, F.D. Roosevelt's great society, a new society. But by the time she, had, uh, she started flying, uh, there were many women pilots uh, uh, making their mark, and I look at them, Amy Johnson, Amelia Earhart, <coughs> Beryl Markham, Harriet Quimby, who was the first woman to fly the, the channel, and the first and the best of all, a French woman called Raimonde de, de la Roche, and she was awarded licence number 36 by the Federation Aeronautique Internationale on the 8th of March 1910. Jean's aviation career was quite brief, spanning only five years, at a time when rather record-setting was almost an international occupation. She made seven flights, which brought her fame and global attention between 33 and 37. And tonight I want to talk about these aeronautical achievements, though by necessity we can see that her personal life shaped everything. And uh, behind her image lay that steely ambition, and this was uh, underpinned and supported by her formidable mother. Now we'll flick through just a couple of the, oops, a couple of the images... And uh, there we are, there's her honours and awards, <coughs> there, and her trophies, there, and the medals. And there, there they go, I see the Aero Club of Argentina, the Aero Club of Finland, who knows why. Anyway, here's Jean and her mother, Ellen. You can see a remarkable woman. 
and um, she embodies what Sir Winston, Winston Churchill's classic definition of a riddle wrapped in a mystery inside an enigma. Now, Churchill was talking about the Soviet Union, and I'm talking about the complexity of Jean's life. And of this life, I'll confine myself simply to noting the endless mysteries of how she and her mother funded everything. Because even then, flying was a very costly venture. And how her friendships, as we will see, seem to be based more on prudential judgments than anything else. She acquired friends and discarded them very, very quickly once they'd, uh, they'd, uh, they'd, uh, they'd finished their purpose. And, but in doing so, I'm mindful of the immense progress, of course, in aircraft and engine design. And more than 40 or well, 45 years ago, I had the pleasure of meeting uh, and talking with the late Geoffrey Nugent Wells, who was a senior engineer with Air New Zealand. And uh, he had a keen interest in pioneering flying and so on. And uh, so we were talking about Kingswood Smith in particular, and uh, Jeff pointed out that the reason that these chaps uh, could do the flying was that for the first time at, at that era, the engine makers, you know, Wrights in the UK, uh, rather in the US, and Pratt and & Whitney, and uh, in the UK, uh, Armstrong, Sidley, de Havilland and uh, uh, Bristol's, uh, produced engines that could run for 24 hours or more. And the, the advancement in design and uh, me metallurgy meant that they had a robust engine structure. And uh, as Jeff uh, put it himself, bearing in mind he was an engineer, he said all the pilot had to do was sit behind the power plant and not touch anything. Uh, so, of course, he was right. Now, uh, her flights were, and we'll break them down, England to Karachi, from the 9th to the 16th of April 1933, in a de Havilland uh, G60 uh, Gypsy Moth G-A-L-A-A-L-G. She used this moth again, England-Rome, 21st of April 1934, and then uh, the aircraft uh, it was badly damaged, and she bought, a, with a friend, she bought the, the metal moth uh, G-A-A-R-B. So uh, she did the England to Australia flight, 8, 23rd May, 1934, then uh, Australia-England, she came back again, 8th to the uh, 29th of April, 1935, there was a gap of a year. And then uh, in 93, uh, in, again in 1935, she flew from England to Brazil, and she had her Percival Gull uh, 6 GADPR, and uh, she flew that aircraft, England to New Zealand, 15th to the 16th of October, and uh, she used it to fly from Australia to back to the UK, 19th to the 24th of October. And to use an old-fashioned phrase, her airmanship was of the highest order. And after her initial sorties of 1933, that's the first England-Karachi flight, her preparations became highly professional. She drew on every expert uh, upon whom she could lay hands, and I don't mean that literally, and she displayed uh, immense physical stamina and courage. Um, her own accounts of these flights uh, are not entirely reliable. She published uh, two books, uh, Solo Flight in 1934 and My Life in 1938. Now, My Life was reissued in 1979 as Alone in the Sky, and you can still see it around. Sadly, these are full of contradictions and omissions, and it's difficult at times to separate 
fact from imagination. She's really consistent in her accounts of how her friends and acquaintances supported her. Back to Jean herself. She was born in, uh, on the 15th of September 1909 in Rotorua. Parents were Frederick and Ellen Batten. Her father was a dentist. Uh, her mother, Ellen, had uh, ambitions to become an actress, but these were unfulfilled. Uh, there were four children, Harold, John, uh, a son who died uh, within days of uh, being born, and then Jean. Uh, she was born Jane Gardner Batten, but she later adopted Jean as a preferred uh, Christian name. Now, Ellen had vaunting ambitions. She was what used to be termed a, a society lady. She was active in community and social affairs, and she became interested in the new sport of flying. There some reports suggest she pinned above the young Jean's cot a newspaper cutting of Louis Blériot in his monoplane after his flight across the Channel on the 25th of July 1909, just two months before Jean's birth. Incidentally, uh, the, the Blériot still survives. It's in Paris. It's in, a, it's in a museum called the Musée des Arts des Métiers, which is basically a science and technology museum. It's in a, it's in a deconsecrated cathedral. And the aircraft was donated by Blériot in August 1909. It was wheeled into the museum, been there ever since. It's never been restored. It's never been touched. Uh, other than every five years, they, they take it down and dust it. So uh, there we have a genuine 1909 aircraft that's still stained in oil and uh, exhaust stains and so on, and, and it's a lovely machine. Uh, when we were in Paris, I used to go there every couple of months and just look at it. And uh, sadly, I must have been the only person present in the room, and uh, it's rather sad that such an important aircraft d d disappeared from public, um, from public attention. Anyway... Uh, Jean's father served with the New Zealand Division on the Western Front and came back to his dentistry practice in uh, late 1918. Now, unfortunately, the marriage fell apart uh, and the couple separated. So Ellen and Jean moved to Auckland. Now, Jean became increasingly interested in aviation in the 20s and uh, inspired particularly by Lindbergh, but more importantly, Sir Charles Kingsford Smith. With, the, with his crossing of the Pacific in, in May of that year, and more importantly, the first aerial crossing of the Tasman uh, on the 10th and the 11th of September 1928. Uh, she accompanied her father to a reception in, in Auckland where she met Sir Charles and told her of, his, uh, rather of her interest in learning to fly. And she recounts how uh, Charles uh, stated in a loud voice, this young woman wants to learn to fly, ho, 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 and the room burst into laughter. Poor, poor Jean was mortally offended by, uh, by that. However, though, uh, they, later that year they went to, the U to, to Australia where, where Jean bought a ride in the Southern Cross flown by, by Ulm and Kingsford Smith. And this really confirmed her intention that she wanted to fly. Now, We'll never know why she didn't take the obvious course and learn to fly with either the Auckland Aero Club at Mangaree or one of the other clubs that, that had, had started. It may have been because her father had discouraged her interest in aviation. So Ellen and Jean devised a, a scheme where they would go to London. And this was ostensibly uh, to extend Jean's musical studies. 
but really where she would learn to fly. Now, Ellen had only a modest maintenance payment from her, from, from, from her husband and no other evident means. She claimed the travel was financed by the sale of Jean's piano. Now, this is unlikely uh, unless the piano had been a Steinway or something like that. So we never knew where that money came from. However, off they went and they arrived in May 1930. And subsequent events would demonstrate that either of them could charm the banknotes out of anyone's wallet, but generally with devastating consequences. Uh, they promptly made their way to Stag Lane Aerodrome, northwest London, time the home of the de Havilland Aircraft Company and the equally legendary London Aeroplane Club. Uh, in those hard years, immediately after the Depression, flying was really something for the wealthy and the club had its fair share of the well-to-do and the heirs and the heiresses. And the strikingly beautiful genes soon attracted the inevitable circle of admirers. And she deliberately kept apart from, from the others. And it didn't help that with a shortage of funds, she and her mother had to keep moving uh, from rented property to rented property. And this was far removed, of course, from the lifestyle of, the, uh, of uh, many of the club members. Again, the question of funds arise. Dual instruction at the club cost £2.10 shillings an hour, and solo was £1.10 shillings an hour. She started lessons, we don't know how, where the funding came from, and she had evident difficulty because she worked through three instructors before ending up with a, with a formidable gentleman called Major Herbert Travers, who had been a, a First World War Royal, Royal Flying um, School man. There's no sign of her logbooks, unfortunately, so we don't know when she made her first solo flight, but we do know that she was awarded her A licence, which was the sort, of, the sort of sort of the basic PPL of the time, on the 5th of December 1930. Now, in May of that year, Amy Johnson became the first woman to fly from England to Australia in a gypsy moth. Now, that moth survives in the Science Museum in London. I guess many of you would have seen the aircraft. Uh, this spurred Jean's ambitions, uh, but after several unsuccessful attempts to raise funds to buy an aircraft, she and her mother had to go back to New Zealand. Now, on the way home, she met a New Zealand pilot called Fred Truman. Now, Fred was serving in India, 31 Squadron Royal Air Force flying Bristol um, fighters. And this would lead to a major development, or put it bluntly, a major investment in Jean's flying career. Once home in Auckland, there was a rapprochement with her father. She actually joined the Auckland Aero Club, and the club archives have some very interesting, not terribly flattering comments by uh, uh, squadron leader Dave Allen, who was uh, CFI at the time of her flying ability. However, her father recognised the inevitable and paid for uh, her to attend a course of navigation. Now, Fred Truman came back on leave and they became great friends and companions. He had to return to the RAF, of course, uh, at the end of her leave, so she went uh, back uh, with him to the UK. Now, her brother John was an actor. He'd, he'd acted on the stage and in screen in the United Kingdom and in the United States and had made a fair bit of money, so John paid for her fare. And then Fred... Uh, paid for her lessons at the London Aeroplane Club by means uh, of an advance on his £500 end-of-service gratuity, which in, in, in effect were life savings. 
This was never repaid by Jean, nor did she ever admit to having received the money. Poor old Fred came back to New Zealand stony broke and, and uh, did not have a pleasant life afterwards. Jean studied for her B licence and undertook a course of engine and aircraft maintenance at the de Havilland Technical School. She helped pay the expenses by delivering new de Havilland aircraft to customers and on one occasion suffered engine failure, made a forced landing in the grounds of the Royal Military College Sandhurst and she ended up on the parade ground. Uh, by her own account, she opened up the gypsy's uh, engine cowling and discovered that a push rod was missing. And it just so happened that she had one in her handbag, so she installed this uh, and, and on she went. In her first book, she described how she ma had to make a vertical bank to fly between two tall trees uh, that were surrounding the parade ground. And she, so she went through and touched down. Subsequent inquiries indicated there were no trees in the vicinity and the loss of power was uh, caused probably by an inadvertent switching off of the magneto. Uh, she was still uh, anxious to make the, a flight to New Zealand and uh, funds were running short as, as poor old Fred's uh, bank account ran dry and she came across the acquaintance of yet another attractive young man. This was a gentleman called Mr. Victor Doré. And he was the son of a, of a wealthy English merchant family, keenly interested in flying to the point where he had his own gypsy moth. Like many others, he became infatuated with Jean, got on well with her mother, and eventually they became quite frequent guests at the family mansion, mansion rather, in northwest London, set in ten acres of ground. Inevitably, the question of funding a long-distance flight arose. Victor came to the party. He borrowed funds from his mother and bought Jean her first aircraft, uh, de Havilland uh, 60G, registered uh, G-A-A-L-G. And interestingly, Jean claimed that she owned it, but if you look at the UK civil aviation records, you find it was actually jointly owned by V.H. Doré and uh, J. Batten, however. The standard moth, which we'll see downstairs, had only the one fuel tank with 19 gallons, uh, but Victor installed two long-range tanks for her, one uh, uh, 27 gallons in, in the forward uh, cockpit and a second uh, smaller one of 15 gallons behind the second cockpit. The Doré family funded all these costs and uh, on the morning of the 8th of April, the entire Doré family assembled uh, to watch her depart from Stag Lane to an airfield called, it's pronounced Lyme, but spelt L-Y-M-P-N-E, Lyme on the Channel Coast in Kent, and this was the preferred setting up point for all the long distance flyers. Uh, Major General, uh, or rather Major Travers was on hand, along with Geoffrey de Havilland. A cine cameraman covered the event and Jean arrived stylishly for the for portraits before climbing into the moth and heading off towards Lyme with Doré alongside <coughs> and his own moth. And Victor used his contacts with Fleet Street and a large contingent of reporters and photographers were on hand from Fleet Street to witness the departure. Victor had very carefully briefed them to the fact that her moth had been previously owned by the Royal Flight and had been flown by none other than the Prince of Wales and she told reporters there that she would take up air taxi work once she reached New Zealand. And so became, began her amazing record. Departing Lyme, she was near Karachi several days later in present-day present Pakistan be, uh, before being forced down in a sandstorm 
and badly damaged the moth. Uh, she tore off both main planes and uh, rolled the thing. And however, fortune was smiling on her and another wealthy gentleman arrived on the scene. This was Lord Wakefield. He was a very wealthy uh, gentleman, uh, generous, uh, and the shrewd founder of the Wakefield Oil Company, which later became Castrol. The reading of her plight and keenly aware of the publicity possibilities, he offered to ship her and the moth back to the United Kingdom free of charge. He was already a prolific funder of pioneer pilots and racing car drivers, all of whom, of course, had to use his product. By the way, he um, helped fund uh, three of the first three moths that came to New Zealand. Uh, and uh, ZKAAA for quite some time had a, a Lord Wakefield sign on, on the side. So she and the moth, courtesy of Lord Wakefield, returned to the United Kingdom and once there, she and Victor parted company. Poor old Victor, his, his father died suddenly, and he was faced with crippling death duties. Much of his estate had to be sold, and he had to sell his moth, moth rather, to repay his mother for the money he had borrowed to buy Jean's moth. And when she discovered that Victor wasn't interested in another aircraft, spurned his offer of uh, marriage and walked out of his life. Uh, several days later, she had a fortuitous meeting with Geoffrey de Havilland uh, at Stag Lane, and uh, she talked about her, her problems and plans, so he wrote again to Lord Wakefield, and Wakefield agreed to help fund the next aircraft. So armed with uh, this, uh, she went to the, sh uh, to the Shell Oil Company and talked them into providing fuel for the flight. So um, with, with the money from Lord Wakefield and others, she bought her second moth, uh, GAARB, from Philip and Powers Aircraft. And this was the 60M, the metal moth, where the original plywood box fuselage was replaced uh, by construction of metal stringers covered with fabric. Now, the overall weight of the aircraft was increased, uh, but maintenance became much easier, and in fact, the airframe was considered much more uh, robust. Now, this aircraft had a distinguished lineage, and previous owners included Flight Lieutenant later Air Marshal Sir Richard Atchley, who was a prominent Schneider Trophy uh, pilot uh, in the 1920s. By this time, yet another benefactor appeared on the scene, and this time the gentleman called Edward Walter. And he was a very wealthy stockbroker, and he had a military background. He'd been a Bengal lancer. Uh, and very keen in, in, in motoring as well as flying. And he owned a string of, um, of Bentley blowers, you know, the famous sports cars, and regularly raced them at, at, at Brooklands. So uh, Jean and her mother uh, shifted down to Brooklands. And uh, so uh, there, uh, there was Edward with his bank account and, and, and the moth. So um, with her second moth, she had the long-range tanks from the first one, removed and reinstalled, and it's never been recorded whether she ever repaid Victor Dore for the, for, for the first cost. Geoffrey de Havilland became very involved and interested in her flying, and he devised what we might term the First Lady's P-tube uh, to manage the demands of nature on long sectors, and we won't go into the details of how this worked, but he did. He also installed a turn and bank indicator to enhance the moth's rather limited panel. Her aim was to break Amy Johnson's record 
and she selected a route from, from Lyme through France, Italy, Greece, Cyprus, Iraq, India, Burma, Thailand, Malaya, Singapore, the Dutch East Indies, and to Darwin. Distance of 10,800 miles, and th once there, there was another 2,000 miles, of course, to reach Sydney. Her flight planning was immaculate. She produced a detailed uh, route guide of navigation data, airfield diagrams, times of sunset and sunrise, charts, a small personal bag with personal attire, including makeup, a selection of spares and basic rations, and a solar topee. Uh, she always, uh, as I say, she always carried makeup and very careful to descend well groomed from each, uh, from each flight. 21st of April, 1934, departed Lyme. To reach Marseille, where very bad weather uh, uh, had uh, had occurred, and the airfield was sodden, uh, the French officials tried to uh, tr tried to discourage her from flying on to 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 Rome, but she insisted. But to take off from the airfield, she decided to dump some of her fuel, and uh, this turned out to be a costly error because she arrived at Rome to uh, to find Rome was was clouded out had to force land because the engine stopped. And she came down in the middle of cloud, right in the middle of, uh, of an Italian wireless, naval wireless station. And uh, the, uh, the, the, the guy ropes or lines on the aerial mast promptly <laughs> tore the wings off the moth. And she was not badly wounded, but she was, she, she was quite badly knocked around. However, another gentleman appeared on the scene, and this was a wealthy Italian airline pilot who just happened to own a moth, which he happened to keep in Rome, and he hadn't been flying it, so he agreed to, to loan her the main planes and the undercarriage, uh, and he installed them for her. She flew the, flew, flew the moth back to the UK, where um, uh, Edward uh, Walter, the, uh, the stockbroker, was on hand, and he installed new main planes, new undercarriage, and paid to ship uh, the Italian gentleman's uh, e equipment back to, back to Rome. Uh, so uh, off she went. Uh, the support of uh, Lord Wakefield and Shell, of course, was invaluable. And along the route to Australia, she was able to make use of facilities offered by the Royal Air Force. Uh, and she, in essence, followed the track of Imperial Airways and KLM by which time had established long-distance commercial air services essentially over the same route. So she basically flew from RAF station to RAF station, where it just so happened that she was able to stay with the station commander each night that she was night stopping, and the RAF tradesman would look after the aircraft and the shell company would refuel it. And uh, uh, the flight went well. Uh, she had a minor oil leak, but that was easily repaired. On day 10, however, she uh, departed uh, Rangoon, rather Calcutta for Ran Rangoon, for a night stop. But next day she ran into a monsoon and it must have been a terrifying experience flying an open aircraft uh, through a series of storm cells. And of course she was entering that, that area of the intertropical convergence zone, you know, that wraps around the equator which are very turbulent to fly through. And I can tell you from yesterday's experience, I had about six hours and a triple seven getting knocked around uh, uh, even at 30,000 feet. So heaven knows what it would have, would have been like at lower levels. She reached Darwin on the 23rd of May at uh, 1330 hours, having set a, a new record of 14 days, 22 hours and 30 minutes. And this was four days less than Amy Johnson. 
The crowd, of course, gave her a rapturous reception, and the news was immediately cabled to London, where Mother was milking the event for all it was worth. It's curious that at that time, neither Jean nor her mother gave any credit to these four men. That's Truman, Doré, Walter, uh, Lord Wakefield, and nor the resources of the RAF, Shell, Imperial Airways and so on, who all made in, uh, immense contributions to her flight. So despite the uh, in, encomia, given her achievement, Flight Magazine noted rather tartly that, uh, that while it was uh, commendable, it, it, uh, it really reflected the uh, amount of support she'd received from the Royal Air Force and from Shell. Uh, she travelled by sea uh, to New Zealand and uh, had a rapturous reception and uh, she stayed with everyone else other than her family uh, and she stayed at a government house in Auckland, she stayed at a government house in Wellington, received a gift of £500, uh, her moth was shipped over by shell from uh, Australia to New Zealand and she flew the aircraft around. Uh, she returned to Sydney uh, and had hopes of uh, entering the Sydney, or rather the Milden Hall to Melbourne 1934 air race. But however, though, she, she, she was unable to, to join, but she did manage to get a flight on the, on the KLM DC-2, which came in second place. And it was at that point that she met a, a, a dashing young Australian gentleman pilot called Beverly Shepherd. Uh, it must have been love at first sight, and poor old Edward Walter was left well behind. And Beverly Shepherd, uh, who was uh, very, very useful in assisting with funding. So on the 8th of April 1935, she departed uh, Sydney in her MOP AARB uh, for the return to Britain. Uh, she left Darwin on the 12th of April, and the flight to Kupang caused some anxious moments with engine failure caused by dust, but that again was the only interruption and she had a, a sort of a routine, you might call it, flight uh, la uh, landing in England on 29th of April but failed to set uh, uh, any new records and this was uh, to be the last long distance flight uh, in the moth which was duly sold. Her achievements took her into the upper levels of British society and she evidently liked them and flourished and her appearances and media activity donations all bore fruit. So uh, on, uh, in September 1935, her 26th birthday, she went to Gravesend where the Australian aircraft designer Ed, uh, Ed, uh, Edgar Percival had set up a factory and uh, he commenced the production of a noteworthy line of modern low-wing monoplanes. So she selected the Gull 6, powered by a 200 horsepower and a Gypsy Major 6, which offered a cruising speed of 150 mile an hour. Long-range tank installed, and the cabin configuration flaps, brakes, electric fuel pumps, offered a vast improvement over the moth. The ever-helpful, rather, Geoffrey de Havilland, of course, installed the P-tube, and the final cost of the aircraft was more than 2,500 pounds. Uh, by this time, her sights were focused on a record-breaking flight from the United Kingdom to South America. The route had been flown commercially and a couple of, of the long-distance pilots had had a crack at it. So anyway, she, she commenced her usual careful preparations with, with general assi generous assistance 
from the aviation department of the Shell Company, where she dealt with a young man who, who according to her notes, had a, had a slight limp. Well, this happened to be uh, Douglas Bader. Uh, the total installed fuel capacity in the Gull 6 was 147 gallons. Uh, she calculated from air tests would give her an endurance of 14 hours, and uh, she had installed a, a supplementary 10-gallon oil tank inside the cabin so she could top up the, uh, the, uh, the main oil tank with a little wo wo wobble pump. On the morning of Armistice Day, 11th of November, she departed Lyme, heading to Casablanca, 1,500 miles away. She reported cruising at 150 miles an hour at 14,000 feet. We have no way of confirming this altitude, and I wonder what the engineers would make of the claim with a normally aspirated Gypsy Major 6. I'm not qualified to answer that question, but it, 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 uh, it poses some problems. The next uh, sector was uh, from Casablanca to French West Africa. The airfield at Dakar was out of service, undergoing repairs after heavy rain, and she had to land at a military airfield some 60 kilometres away, but, uh, and the fuel was brought in by road from Dakar. At 4.45am uh, on the 12th of November, she took off on the longest haul across the Atlantic, uh, heading for uh, Natal, uh, which she hit on the button <coughs> after 13 hours and 15 minutes. And this gave her an elapsed time of two days, 13 hours, 15 minutes from England to Brazil. She, uh, two days later, she took the aircraft up to Rio, or down to Rio rather. Uh, this was interrupted by a forced landing on a beach. Uh, after a fuel leak, then she was located by the Brazilian Air Force, which repaired the leak and straightened the propeller. And, and escorted her into, into Rio. Uh, in, in Rio, she was uh, showered with honours and gifts, and she flew to Uruguay and then to Argentina, where again the response was the same. And while she was in Buenos Aires, she received an invitation from Charles Lindbergh to fly the gull up to the United States and to make a coast-to-coast -coast lecture tour uh, with him, uh, in which uh, the Lindbergh uh, organisation would of course, pay all the expenses, and, and uh, she would be paid for the experience. Now, at the age of 26, you'd think that uh, Joan would have made that call herself, but no, she, 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 she had to contact Mother. So she sent a cable to Mother in London who said, no, you must come home straight away. So Jean duly uh, <coughs> obliged and, and another example of the generosity that seemed to follow her around the world took up the offer of the Royal Mail shipping line to ship her and, and the girl uh, back to England, free of charge of course. Uh, on the 28th of November she took the girl down to Gravesend for um, uh, the equivalent, I don't know, to see her a D-check these days, but she forced landed en route and badly damaged the aircraft. Uh, and she claimed the accident had been caused by a sudden loss of power uh, Percival couldn't find any problems with the engine, but he duly repaired all the damage and didn't charge her. In mid-1936, Jean and her mother made a leisurely tour, aerial tour to Spain and to Tangier in the Gull, as then they became first attracted to life in the Mediterranean in Spain. Uh, that year came the award of a CBE alongside the Brazilian Officer of the Order of the Southern Cross and the French the Chevalier of the Légion d'Honneur. Uh, King Edward VIII conferred uh, the, uh, the CBE 
on her at a Buckingham Palace. By this time, her flights had attracted the attention of the various aviation organisations. The Royal Aero Club awarded her the Britannia Trophy in 1935 and again in 1936. In the same year, she, she, she won the Seagrave Trophy, the most outstanding demonstration of the possibilities of transport on land, water or in the air. There was still one final ambition. This was a flight from England to New Zealand. By 1936, it was possible to fly as a passenger with Imperial Airways uh, to Singapore and Qantas from Singapore to um, Brisbane. Um, but by uh, virtue of the gifts and income and from newspaper and film activities, Jean was able to fund the, uh, the reinstallation of the long-range tanks into the Gull. And on dawn on the 5th of October, she departed Lyme in the full glare of the, of, of the movie cameras. Made refuelling stops, Marseille, Brindisi, Cyprus, the military H3 airfield in Syria, and then Basra, and reached Karachi in less than three days. And again she wrote about the contrast of her earlier flight, flying at 14,000 feet in a heated cabin with a Gypsy Major 6 engine. Uh, she flew the 1,900 miles to Akyab in Burma, now Myanmar. The next day she again hit the monsoon rains which even penetrated the cabin of the gull. She made hurried stops at Alostar Star in Penang and reached Singapore only four days, 17 hours after leaving England. At all of her stops, she was handled by the RAF, refueled by Shell, and essentially the flights were tests of physical endurance. Final sector, uh, Kupang and, and Timor to Darwin, took only four hours, and this set an absolute record of five days, 21 hours. The journey to Sydney was rather more leisurely, but again, she was greeted by enormous crowds and much enthusiasm. She assembled a, a commercial team to manage her finances, and the Sydney Morning Herald and the New Zealand Herald formed a syndicate to publish her story worldwide. And she made a lot of money from uh, fees from radio broadcasts and personal appearances. Uh, one obstacle remained. This was the flight across the Tasman. The Australian Department of Civil Aviation refused to issue a permit. They had concerned about the range uh, and, the, uh, and the endurance of the aircraft. So Jean did her usual trick and complained to the Minister in charge of Civil Aviation, who promptly approved the flight. So the doors were opened and she was even given permission to use the Royal, Air, Royal Australian Air Force Station at Richmond, without charge, of course, for the departure to New Zealand. After resting overnight, the home of the station commander. On the 5th of May, she took off at uh, 0430 hours, bound for New Zealand. Heavy cloud and rain blotted out much of the mid-Tasman, but nine hours after departure, she spotted Mount Egmont and swept over the old New Plymouth airfield at Bell Block, uh, before heading to Mangaree, where she touched down at 1640 hours to a massive cheering crowd. We saw a photograph of it earlier on. and uh, She set a, a record, a rather Tasman record of 10 hours and, and 30 minutes. Again, uh, there was a wide tour of News, New Zealand with uh, a great deal of uh, affection showered upon her. Stayed at Government House in Wellington and Auckland, but this took a terrible toll on her and I think she had the equivalent of a breakdown. And so she withdrew from public life and uh, before she shipped back to Sydney with the gull in November of that year. And there was just one final challenge, and that was the Australia-UK record. So again, with the newspaper backing and uh, the backing of, of Sir Frank Packer, 
uh, who, who owned about half the Australian papers at the time. She departed Darwin on the 19th of October and reached Lyme on the 24th of October, flight time of, of five days, 19 hours, 15 minutes, again setting a new absolute record. Exploits dominated the newspapers, the radios and the newsreels, and there were nearly 10,000 people besieging Croydon Airfield, then London's major airport, and the mounted police were calling to, uh, to break up the crowds. She was summoned to Buckingham Palace uh, for tea. She had tea with the Lord Mayor, addressed a committee of the House of Commons, and was a guest of honour at a banquet of the Royal Aero Club. But in effect, this was the end. Her distance flying was over. She did do some uh, private touring around Europe, uh, in her gull, where she was, of course, uh, fettered by the government, found special attention in Sweden. There she struck up a friendship with, firstly, the royal family and the family of a gentleman called Mr. Axel Benegren. Uh, this, uh, this was an immensely wealthy family with extensive business interests. Uh, Grenner then founded the Electrolux Company, you know, the, vacuum cleaner company, uh, dairy farming equipment and so on, but uh, his most significant activity was uh, they owned Bofors, which uh, had by then designed the 20mm uh, the and 40mm fast firing uh, artillery piece. And possibly unknown to Jean, the Venegrens enjoyed strong connections with the Nazis in Germany. And this might have led to her undoing. In late August, while she was staying with them in Sweden, she received a cable from friends in London urging her to come back immediately because of the threat of the outbreak of war and to avoid flying across Germany. But uh, Axel Benegren immediately telephoned uh, Berlin and surprise, surprise, she received permission to transit Germany on her way home without, uh, without uh, interruption. Now, Benegren uh, was known to be a friend and a close confidant of Hermann Goering. So there we are on the outbreak of war. She was back in London, so she immediately offered her services to the British government. Again, she didn't go through the usual cha channels. She, she, she had a friend uh, in, in the House of Lords, so he offered to do what he could, uh, which was nothing. She applied to join the auxiliary, uh, the air transport auxiliary, and was declined. Uh, she later put this down to her bad eyesight. Well, uh, no one knew she had bad eyesight. And what's more, a fair proportion of the ATA pilots, who were by and large older pilots, old, older than the age of acceptance for service flying, uh, wore, wore glasses and all sorts of things. So uh, one can only uh, surmise that her activities in Sweden were considered to be unhelpful. Uh, she was mortally offended when the British government took up the, uh, the gull, but so what? Every civil aircraft was taken up for RAF service uh, here in New Zealand, uh, of course, as well as in the United Kingdom. And she was put to work in a munitions factory, which didn't suit her at all. And midway through the war, she was fetched out of that, and she joined a touring troupe of prominent personalities who toured the factories and so on to encourage the, uh, the workers for greater and better things. And that essentially uh, was the end of her working life. Interesting, the Air Transport Auxiliary 
was uh, staffed by some 1,300 uh, pilots, older people, uh, both men and women. 15% of the pilot force were women, and at least six of them were from New Zealand. Uh, and the best known was probably Trevor Hunter, Miss Trevor Hunter, who later became Mrs. Trevor Colway from Whanganui. And Trevor, with uh, Ted Harvey, uh, f- uh, set uh, a long, or rather a one-day long-distance record, North Cape to the Bluff, in 16 hours, 10 minutes, uh, in December 1933, in a Western Federated Flying Club, Gypsy Moth, the ZKABP. Eight years later, Trevor was ferrying Spitfires and Lancasters around the UK. Now, unfortunately, we've had to wait much longer before women took command of airliners. And as we know, in, in New Zealand took its first two women pilots, Jan Everest and Sue Truman, only in 1979. And today the picture is greatly and, uh, and very encouragingly much different. Interestingly, in my ANSET New Zealand days, we, we recruited uh, six women pilots and we sent them over for um, type training in Australia. And we found that women pilots were much better instrument pilots than men. Who knows? However, back to Jean. On the shrine of the Air Force uh, Museum of New Zealand are engraved some lines by British poet uh, Stephen Spender. He was writing about pilots who fought the Battle of Britain in the Blitz, but somehow these lines align with Jean. He was fighting, of course, a much lesser cause. And these lines are, Near the snow and near the sun, in the highest fields, see how these names are fettered by the waving grass and by the streamers of white cloud and the whispers of wind in the listening sky. And that image of that brief period of fame in the air seems to me to sum up Jean Batten's flight. She moved to Spain with her mother. Mother, mother, fortunately, unfortunately, died in 1977 at the age of 92. And Jean remained there. Uh, She visited New Zealand uh, on several occasions. And uh, I had to deal with her on one of them. And I must say she was a very difficult person to deal with. Again, her trip out to New Zealand and back again, internal travel, accommodation was all paid for. So she didn't have to spend a penny. Uh, One minute she could be absolutely charming and a delightful person. Next minute, click like that. Uh, The late John Spedding, BIAC, recounts how uh, he had to take her to a function in Auckland. It had been organised well in advance and there were a hundred or so guests and invitations had been sent out. She had agreed to it, went to the hotel to collect her and no sign of her. She, he finally got to her room and got the door open and she said no, she wasn't going. End of story. So, she spent increasingly uh, her last days in Spain, occasional trips to, uh, to London where Britannia Airways, sadly no longer with us, uh, who had named an aircraft uh, uh, in her honour, used to pay her, or rather gave her free of charge, free travel there and back first class. And uh, she became apparently a difficult passenger for them. I had some contact in 1983 when I was at the New Zealand High Commission on a, 
on a, a special project and uh, some family friends had inquired about it, not family, but family friends. And so we made uh, our embassy in, in Paris, which then covered Spain, made some inquiries with, with the Spanish officials. And we did what we could from London. And I went to see both Britannia and to Barclays Bank uh, in the Haymarket, uh, where she still had about 100,000 pounds in the bank. And bank manager said that uh, they hadn't had any contact from her in, in more than a year or so. And uh, from the response I had from the bank manager, I don't think he was entirely unhappy that he hadn't heard from her because she turned, to be, she turned out to be a very difficult person. Um, she lingered on until November 1982 where uh, she was living alone, again, by, by, by choice. Uh, it, was her, it was her choosing. She was unfortunately bitten by what was evidently a rabid dog and she died of septicemia. And uh, the woman who used to look after her cottage twice a week came in one day and found her dead. And she had no documentation on her whatsoever. And so she ended up being buried in a pauper's grave. And it wasn't for about five years until subsequent inquiries tracked her down and, we, and found out it was actually Jean. So she ended, uh, I, I, I think, a terribly sad and tragic life. And you know, it really is a shame because her flying in those short, that short period, 33 to 37, was really quite remarkable. But sadly, the other aspects of her life dominated and she died, alas, alone. And uh, people ask me my views of uh, what impact she had on aviation in New Zealand, and I think hardly any. I mean, uh, because our first two women pilots uh, were trained in 1929, uh, Gladys Sanford and Araha Clifford. Araha trained with the Canterbury Aero Club. Gladys trained quite uh, unofficially with the, which with the, was then known as the Permanent Air Force at Wigram, where a certain uh, uh, wing commander, Len Isaac, sub subsequently got, got into trouble for teaching her to fly, however. But uh, as, as I say, her contribution re really was nothing. So what we are left with is just the sad memory of this woman who died a terribly sad and tragic life. But it was all of her own choosing, and that's it. Thank you. Happy to take any questions. Thank you, Des. Oh, can I just flick through the um, images of, uh, uh, that we have here? There's Jean and her mother. Uh, those are the flights out. We have these. Uh, part one, whoops, part two. Uh, pardon my mapping, but uh, you can guess where it's been taken from. Uh, there we are there. Th those are the records, the 34, the solo, 35, the absolute record, 36, absolute record, 37, the solo record. The these are the aircraft. Here is the first moth. Now, the photograph... Um, was in the colours of the royal um, of the royal flight, dark blue fuselage. Uh, the fin was dark blue with a uh, dark red stripe. The colours of the brigade of guards, of course. And uh, oops, sorry. Uh, the next one. There's uh, the second moth. You can see the the metal string is there. No, you can't see it in this image. But Jean claimed that she had painted. Uh, lines along there to 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 cite her drift, 
because she claimed that she carried a f uh, uh, packages of aluminium powder that she dropped on the sea where, where she could measure her drift. Well, to do that, according to a navigator friend of mine, you have to have a drift site. And there's certainly no drift site fitted to the moth, and there's no drift site fitted to the Vega Gull. So I think this was part of the imaginative approach that she took to uh, her, um, her record-keeping. But there's the aircraft. It's flying over Brooklyn, and there's the spare prop along the side. And finally, the Percival Gull 6 now at Auckland. And I took this photograph at Shuttleworth in, in 1990. And it's a lovely little, little aircraft. You can see the Brazilian flag and Argentina there and um, Uruguay there. And I sometimes wonder whether the aircraft would be better flying, but uh, who knows. And there we go. Now, um, if anyone would like a, a copy of the text or the um, this PowerPoint, uh, I've said them to Des, and you're most well welcome to have access to them. Uh, the photographs are probably copyright, but if we work on the principle that according to copyright law, if, it's, if, if the image is more than 50 years old, you're, you're okay. But don't use it for publication purposes. Thanks indeed. Thank are there any questions for Brian, my uh, colleague of mine's father built the um, long-range fuel tanks. Really? In, in, uh, in England in 1930. Yes, yeah. Gosh, really. What, for the, uh, for the moth or, 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 or for the gull? I think it was the gull. Oh, right, yes. Yeah, gosh. Yeah. Interesting. Yes, it's... Um, no, the, the, the gull for its time was a remarkable aircraft, and I really wonder if uh, Percival had gone into all-metal construction that uh, might have... Uh, been a different uh, picture for the British aircraft industry because when you consider the Gull and the Proctors and then post-war the Austers and so on and by that time the Americans were building Cessnas so it's time for another story. Right? So Brian, ah, yeah, no, Brian. one more. Warren? Isn't it an interesting fact? She came to Tower Boys College in either 69 or 70. Ah, yes. I which year. Yeah. She came to the swimming sports one of our houses was Batten House. All I remember is Batten House came last. <laughs> <laughs> she, she, she talked about you know, perseverance and yes. you know, how many times they talked about it. I thought it was just an Yes, indeed, yes. Gosh, yes, yes. It's a, on a good day, she was very good. Yes. yes. But they were few and far between. <laughs> Sorry. Brian, so the aircraft, there's another one up here, it's Jane flying about, how many years ago was it last flying before it was put up? Uh, well, I, I was offshore at the time, but I think it flew a little time in New Zealand, didn't it? Uh, I think uh, the, uh, the gull has flown in New Zealand, hasn't it? It has, yes. Yes, uh, yes. Hamilton Civil Registered ZK PDR. Ah, really? Right. Mm -hmm. Hang on, the last three. ZK PDR. Ah, yep. So yep, okay, fine. Mm -hmm. And there was a young woman who was the pilot. She flew it around Auckland. Yes, yeah, yeah I, I think she, uh, yes, she'd need to be a... Of, of fairly light, uh, light build. Oh, yes. Yeah, so. Hmm. Ah yes, yes. Hmm. Yes. Ah yes, yes. 
All right. Yeah. Mm, mm. Good. Yeah. Yes, of course. Yeah. Yes, indeed, yeah, 1910, yes. Mm hmm yep. Yes. Mm. Yes, indeed, yes, yes, sure. Mm. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> That's nice. Mm -hmm. Sorry, yeah. yeah, just to add to the, uh, when the Auckland Airport bought uh, ADPR, yes. um, they re-registered in New Zealand. But yep. They set it set up. They were going to do flying and keep it flying. Ah yes. But um, the the one flight they did, this lady pilot, it had spark plug trouble. Ah yes. Uh, all the plugs up, and they decided then that the aeroplane was too rare and valuable yeah. to allow it to carry on. Fair enough. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Sure. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, they wanted to borrow my. They wanted to buy my registration. I had a Tiger Moth Alpha India Alpha AIA. Yes, indeed. The Auckland International Airport wanted to put that registration on that Gulf. <laughs> so they, they wrote to wrote to me and asked me, could I relinquish the registration of AIA? And I said, well, you would have to talk to the histori the Aviation Historical Society. Quite right, indeed. Totally yes, <laughs> we would be outraged. <laughs> Indeed. Well, well so done, they, John. They dropped it after that. Yes, they, indeed. They left it uh, at yep. Yes, yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's a nice story. It's, uh, but um, I remember the New Plymouth Aero Club, of which I was a member in, in, the, in the late 50s, early 60s, had, uh, had a Vega Gull. They had AKV, uh, which was painted in a terrible modern colour scheme like a Holden car. Uh, but it was, it was an old banger, it really was. It was uh, the cabin would always fill with smoke, and it, and, uh, and it burned more more oil than than, uh, than av gas. But, uh, but uh, still, uh, uh, the club used it until uh, we raised the funds to go and buy a Cessna. So there we go. Is that the big gold that uh, Phil Lightband flew from England? Uh, no, it wasn't. No, it, it was. It came up pre-war. It was shipped out, it was ZKAFI yep. and served with the RNZAF with the 42 Squadron for the war and it was demobbed again and the New Plymouth Club bought in about 1958, I think. Yeah. So. Well, thank you, Brian, and I'd um, just like to acknowledge your amazing attention to detail. You can see why you're the president of the Aviation Historical Society for New Zealand. But um, thank you very much on behalf of our branch and all the other people that are here from the Aviation Historical Society and other guests here this evening. Um, you've set a high standard for the inaugural um, um, seminar. I mean, they've come an awful long way from New York to come here, so the next person who's going to speak next year is going to have to, to raise the money. It's come from somewhere in the, uh, Russia or somewhere like that. Maybe they'll look after yeah. the travel. Yeah. So thank you very much. Um, yeah. Thanks, Brian, for coming. And um, you're off back to the United States tomorrow to... Mm. to um, and I don't know that this mentioned, but Brian's wife is helping... Um, Clark's candidacy for the United Nations, so it's quite an important role for New Zealand and another achieving woman that we're all pretty supportive of. So thank you very much, Brian. Thank you, it's a pleasure. Thank you. <laughs>
That was the Wings Over New Zealand show with Dave Homewood. Hey! 